Today marks 100 years to the day since Parliament in Northern Ireland was officially opened by King George V. Only six months earlier, the Government of Ireland Act had introduced partition in Ireland by legislating for two new Home Rule Parliaments, one in Belfast and one in Dublin. We'll go to Belfast now and join our Decade of Commemorations series editor Shane McAlhatton. Thanks, Mary. You join us here in the magnificent sun-drenched surroundings of City Hall, Belfast, which was the setting 100 years ago today for one of the most important speeches ever made in the history of this island. King George V formally opened the Belfast Parliament, but the King's inauguration speech not only gave prestige to the new entity of Northern Ireland, it sent out coded peace feelers to Sinn Féin and the IRA as the War of Independence was locked in stalemate. Within weeks, the war was over. We're here to talk about these seismic events and we'll be continuing this discussion after nine o'clock on the digital news channel, if you can stay with us. I'm joined now by Dr. Marie Coleman, lecturer in Irish history, Queen's University, Belfast. She's a member of the Northern Ireland Centenary Historical Advisory Panel. Dr. Eamon Phoenix, political historian at Stranmillis University College and a member of the Taoiseach's Expert Advisory Group on Commemorations. And Professor Brian Walker, Professor Emeritus of Irish Studies at Queen's University, Belfast. Now, I've sketched the broad context in which the speech uh, must be seen, but could I start by asking all three of you for the elevator pitch? Like, why, why should people be interested? Why should people take, um, invest this speech with importance? Mary? I suppose, first of all, it was the, I suppose, that gave the royal seal of approval to partition and the creation of Northern Ireland. Partition came in, Theoretically, with the passing of the legislation in December, then the practical application was made, but really the ceremony which made people realise that partition was a reality and Northern Ireland was here to stay in the meantime, at least, came with the, that great ceremony on that day. Eamon? Yes, pomp and ceremony, but of course this was the transformative moment really in the history of the whole island rather than just the north. He set the seal in partition to the chagrin of nationalists and republicans, but of course the king was interested in unlocking um, the violence, finding a, fee- a peace process. He was interested in Ireland as his grandson, Prince Charles, reminded historians here a, a few weeks ago, and he wanted to say something of moment, and he did. Brian. Well, it's a great symbolic value, uh, symbolic value f- for unionists. Uh, this is the establishment of the Northern Ireland Parliament. It had already been constituted uh, a couple of weeks before, but this was a formal opening, very important. But uh, it was also this reaching out, uh, this appeal uh, to all Irish people. Uh, he hoped this would be a, an important moment, not just for the six counties, as he says, but for the rest of Ireland and for the rest of the world looking on. He hoped this would be a, 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 an important point of change. Could I put it to the panel that this was... in at two directions at once, masterstroke. One hand, he gives prestige and uh, comfort to the new entity of Northern Ireland. On the other, he's sending a coded message to Sinn Féin that allows Lloyd George political cover to make contact with Eamon de Valera. And it's no coincidence that the war is over within three weeks. I think that's true, and I think the importance there is the person of the king. Even the Prime Minister Lloyd George, writing to the king a few days afterwards, said none but the king could have made that personal appeal, none but the king could have evoked so instantaneous a response. Coming from a politician, coming from Lloyd George, who the Irish nationalists, the Irish Republicans did not trust with good reason, it wouldn't have carried the same weight. So the the king being above politics, being the head of state, he alone in his own person carried an awful lot of significance. 
Yes, and the speech seems there's this personal element to it. Uh, I mean, as head of state, he would be in one hand setting government policies, but on the other hand, uh, he had this personal attachment to Ireland as he goes out of his way to explain. Uh, so it's very important in that way that it expresses not just the government's point of view, his own point of view, and it does make a big impression. Well, Craig, of course, was delighted that his homeland that he had envisioned for the previous 20 years outside uh, a nationalist parliament in Dublin had the seal set on it by the king. But the king was interested in Ireland. Um, he had intervened uh, at the Buckingham Palace Conference in 1914 to avert civil war then. Um, he had a, tr a very, very great concern about the reprisals policy of the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries, uh, which was obviously underwritten by his government. And he was speaking to General Jan Smuts, of course, uh, who had contact with de Valera through Tom Casement, Casement's brother. So, I mean, his speech was heavily overwritten by all of these hands, especially General Smuts. In South terms African of Premier. I beg your pardon? The South African Premier. The South African Prime Minister, who had been a rebel in arms against the British Crown during the Second Boer War 20 years earlier, and was now a loyal Dominion's Prime Minister, trying to persuade Sinn Féin to accept a gradualist approach to an all-Ireland Republic, accept Dominion status. So the King knew where he was going. There had been previous peace overtures that year. Uh, through Lord George, they had failed. James Craig had met de Valera at Lord George's more or less command on the 5th of May. And uh, each sort of knew the other's bottom line. So the King was making a speech to change the situation, and it was transformative. Um, I think we'll play a clip now of the reenactment of the speech done by the actor Stephen Beggs uh, for this occasion, and uh, we're going to hear more of it in, after nine o'clock. We're going to sort of parse some of the uh, some of the um, segments. But the segment that gets so much attention is the one where he again holds out the vision of a separate future for Ireland, for the rest of Ireland inside the empire, but also a strong hint that it was time to talk. The eyes of the whole empire are on Ireland today. That empire in which so many nations and races have come together in spite of ancient feuds, and in which new nations have come to birth within the lifetime of the youngest in this hall. I am emboldened by that thought, to look beyond the sorrow and the anxiety which have clouded of late my vision of Irish affairs. I speak from a full heart when I pray that my coming to Ireland today may prove to be the first step towards an end of strife amongst her people, whatever their race or creed. In that hope, I appeal to all Irishmen to pause to stretch out the hand of forbearance and conciliation, to forgive and to forget, and to join in making for the land which they love a new era of peace, contentment, and goodwill. Who picked up on the signals from the speech first? Was it Sinn Féin or was it Lloyd George who now had the cover, the political cover, to make an approach to Eamon de Valera and say it's time to talk? Or, or was there some awareness in the Sinn Féin ranks to how important this speech was? I think there's a level of orchestration. I noticed in that segment we heard the King says it's the first step towards an end of strife, but it's not really. As Eamon uh, said previously, this is part of a wider process with peace moves which went back to late 1920. So I think they knew to look for a signal. This speech takes place 
in, in, not in a vacuum, but in a much wider context of moves between uh, civil, senior civil servants in Dublin Castle, like Andy Cope, making uh, approaches to Sinn Féin. When De Valera came back to Ireland at the end of 1920, he was allowed back into the country. There was a sense that he needed to be there. So th there's a much wider network of uh, contacts between the British and the Irish, and this this is almost set up to send a signal. It sends that signal, and by the 24th of June, two days later, Lloyd George is writing to De Valera to ask him to come and talk to him. Brian, could I ask you about the um, the background to the opening of Parliament? Because in September of 1920, nothing nothing existed. That there was no infrastructure, there was no administration, and uh, Sir Ernest Clark sent up from Dublin to. Uh, take up the post of assistant undersecretary for Belfast, armed, as he said, with a table, a chair, and an act of parliament. What sort of achievement was it to get to where they got to by June? Well, it, it was a major achievement. Now, Sir Ernest Clark comes to, to Belfast before the, the Government of Ireland Act uh, comes into play. Uh, I mean, it's been debated in Parliament, um, but it's pretty clear he's going to go through in some form. So he comes here in September, meets people, uh, meets uh, Craig meets others. Uh, he then uh, sets up a base here uh, and sets about establishing departments, establishing a civil service. Uh, so when the new uh, parliament meets for the first time, and it, as it does uh, two weeks before this date that we're talking about today, uh, already he has drawn up plans for departments, um, drawn up plans for a civil service, uh, and these are well established by this stage. So it, it's an important uh, development uh, because coming uh, to being just on this day, uh, if you hadn't laid these plans, it would be very difficult. Mm. Now, in the event, uh, it still takes uh, a number of months before everything is transferred from Dublin. In fact, it's not until uh, early, early 1922 that um, all uh, powers are transferred from Dublin. Uh, but these uh, stages are well underway by the date we're talking about today and that was very important. Now um, if we looked at these windows here behind us a uh, hundred years ago we would, would have seen pomp and ceremony um, but a few streets away the violence in Belfast which had been gathering pace since the summer of 1920 um, was reaching something of a crescendo. The Irish Independent was reporting that 150 Catholic families were thrown out of their homes in the previous week alone. Yes. In the pre-12th days, of course, before the King's visit, 150 Catholic families, mainly ex-soldiers, were burnt out of their houses at the lower end of the Shanka Road streets. And, of course, there had been a reprisal killing to an IRA attack in Belfast in which three nationalists were killed just a few days earlier. And 30 people would die between the King's visit, despite his conciliatory words, and the end of July in Belfast alone, in this ongoing sectarian and political strife which lasted until September 1922 uh, and was only curbed then by curfew and other measures. So you have that whole background to the whole affair. I mean, the King's speech was directed at de Valera in the South. His antennae were very sensitive to this. He was in touch with people like Tom Casement, Smuts. He knew something was coming. The nationalist press reaction in Dublin was certainly very positive. Even the Unionist Irish Times welcomed the King's remarks. And that all enabled Lloyd George 
to act, as he put it, in his invitation to de Valera in the spirit of the king's words. And that squashed the kind of war party in the Tory party who wanted 200,000 troops sent in, as Henry Wilson did, to crush the IRA once and for all. Boer War tactics, which would outrage American opinion, for one thing, and liberal and opinion in Britain. Yeah. So the king was coming at a nodal moment. And, I mean, he played a blinder as regards bringing about an end to violence in the south, but the northern violence continued unremittingly. But it's a point worth making. The violence doesn't stop. The violence doesn't stop in the rest of Ireland. Uh, it appears about 160 deaths occur between this stage and the truce. So there's violence going on. And of course, a couple of days later, the King's um, uh, troops in a train going back to Dublin is derailed and Police, army members are killed and lots of horses are killed so the violence doesn't stop we, we shouldn't think that uh, the, the next day everyone felt well let's have peace uh, it takes some time and a lot of death still to come now uh, we're um, we're coming up to the to the end of our uh, radio segment uh, and uh, i just want to call in our northern editor um vincent carney uh, just to sort of talk about the uh, the the way the commemorations have been handled and uh, how, the, how, how the job of knitting it into the current situation has been handled. Uh, Vincent, there was concern in 2020 that the centenary commemorations would pose a serious challenge to the DUP Sinn Féin relationship. Is it fair to say that events just simply overtook these concerns? Uh, they have indeed on a number of fronts. I mean, uh, COVID actually has helped in that sense in that there may be large-scale pre uh, parades and, and celebrations. And of course, because of the sensitivities around here, you know, unionists wanted to celebrate. They, they see this as something to celebrate. Nationals have made it clear throughout from Sinn Féin and the SLP. They didn't view this as something to, ce to celebrate. They wanted to mark it in some way. So huge sensitivities around it. Boris Johnson himself said it had to be handled in a very sensitive fashion. So I think in that sense, COVID helped because it, it removed the possibility of large-scale parades and, and probably dialed down the rhetoric a little bit. But in terms of, of what's happened today, we have Geoffrey Donaldson, who's uh, applying to be DUP leader today, talking about needing to secure the union. We've had unionist politicians in the last few weeks referring to the Northern Protocol, the sea border, as partitioning the United Kingdom. So they say history is a way of going around in circles and coming back. And, and in many ways, unionists today see themselves as, again, trying to, to fight to retain that link with Britain. So it's, it's a mirror image. The sea border has replaced the land border. Did any consensus emerge between the, the, the DUP and Sinn Féin as to how the centenary would be marked? I mean, for example, Arlene Foster said, now it was two years ago, that it would be a celebration. She, she pulled back from that. Michelle O'Neill told the Queen she wanted the Sinn Féin approach to be reconciliation, but also said partition, fail, fail, fail on every count. The only consensus has been, has been very low-key. A list of events agreed by the Northern Ireland Assembly, and the list of events agreed, lectures, um, a written competition, uh, open days, exhibitions, another exhibition, a number of speakers' events, nothing large-scale. It's all small-scale. And there was a proposal to have a centenary stone installed at Stormont, Northern Ireland. Sinn Féin opposed that. They were criticised by unionist parties. Even the SDLP had signed up to that as well. So in terms of consensus, no, Sinn Féin wanted this very low-key. They didn't want any kind of large-scale celebration, and that's what's happened. Uh, even here tonight, the City Hall was lit up at half-ten tonight with animations of the King's uh, visit. Parliament buildings will be lit up this afternoon at three o'clock, but again, no large-scale events, and Sinn Féin not involved in any kind of, if you like, reconciliation and, and holding out the hand for any kind of, of large-scale event. And Union has been very critical of that. And um, will there be any 
attempt to uh, re retrieve the situation like once when COVID has been lifted, that they might actually carry a whole some events or is that it they'll just move on no i think so there, there are events um planned throughout the year the orange order has put up happy birthday northern Ireland banners there are centenary flags and lampposts throughout some loyalist areas so i think so, certainly the orange order would like to hold some kind of events and turn some of their parades into celebrations of, of northern Ireland. in terms of Sinn Féin coming forward and any kind of large-scale event no not, nothing like that but certainly unionism will want to celebrate it in some way um just how we're not quite sure yet Okay, well, um, we're ready to go now with the King's speech. Um, so, uh, as promised, uh, we're going to parse some of the key um, segments from it. It's not very long, it's just over five minutes as a speech, but we've lifted four, four segments that we think are important. Mm. Um, they were reenacted by actor Stephen Beggs, who did a great job on it. I think a very difficult accent to get right. Um, let's hear how he opened his address. Members of the Senate and of the House of Commons, for all who love Ireland as I do with all my heart, this is a profoundly moving occasion in Irish history. My memories of the Irish people date back to the time when I spent many happy days in Ireland as a midshipman. My affection for the Irish people has been deepened by the successive visits since that time, and I have watched with constant sympathy the course of their affairs. I could not have allowed myself to give Ireland by deputy alone my earnest prayers and good wishes in the new era which opens with this ceremony, and I have therefore come in person, as the head of the Empire, to inaugurate this Parliament on Irish soil. I inaugurate it with deep-felt hope, and I feel assured that you will do your utmost to make it an instrument of happiness and good government for all parts of the community which you represent. This is a great and critical occasion in the history of the six counties, but not for the six counties alone, for everything which interests them touches Ireland, and everything which touches Ireland finds an echo in the remotest parts of the Empire. Do we get a sense that this was not a routine royal speech? Like, was the content, like, for example, the line about, I couldn't send a deputy to do this, hmm. that if you weren't primed already, you'd be sitting up going, is this, is this going to be a, a key speech? I think it is, and he actually had been the deputy himself before, back when he was heir to the throne, and uh, he represented his father, Edward VII, at the opening of the first parliament of the uh, Australian Federation. So he, he, he had a, a bit of a record in opening uh, parliaments, but never before had the sovereign opened anything other than the imperial parliament in Westminster. So that was very significant. And yes, I think that sense that I had to do this myself, Itself is uh, it comes across there, and a, a point Brian made earlier on the radio segment: the king's genuine affection for Ireland, and speaking about the time he spent there. To him, the Irish were his people too. He was still the, this was still the United Kingdom. And even if Irish nationalists didn't want themselves to be seen as the king's people, from his perspective, they were his people. That's why he was so upset about things like the reprisals, as Eamon has, has spoken about as well. So we, it's important to see it from his perspective. I also picked up, I think in that short segment, segment we listened to, he used the word empire twice. And we've spoken here much about the 
um, immediate context of the impact of the speech in Ireland and on Anglo-Irish relations, the King would have been much more aware of how this would play out in the Empire. The Dominion Conference with all the Dominion Prime Ministers was happening in London. Smuts, who was talked about, spoken about here earlier, was bending his ear about what he should do. So there's, there's a much wider audience as well here, and the King wanted to make sure that the Empire... I think he was also concerned about the future, and I mean, the, the word empire happens about six or seven times in the whole speech. Uh, really, you're giving way from empire to commonwealth as well in this period, but I think there's a little bit of trepidation maybe on the part of the king about what the future holds for the empire looking at events in Ireland. No, is no. It, uh, I wanted to bring up the, the second segment, which had an, a coded reference um, that was intended to pay tribute to the um, part played by Ulster regiments in the Great War. Um, it, the speech was carefully crafted to recognise the importance to the Unionist community of the memory of the 16th Ulster Division's part in the recent Great War. Most certainly there is no wish nearer my own heart than that every man of Irish birth, whatever be his creed and wherever be his home, should work in loyal cooperation with the free communities on which the British Empire is based. I am confident that the important matters entrusted to the control and guidance of the Northern Parliament will be managed with wisdom and with moderation, with fairness and due regard to every faith and interest and with no abatement of that patriotic devotion to the empire which you proved so gallantly in the Great War. Brian, how important was that reference by, by inference, paying tribute to the Ulster Division and the role that that memory played in the origin story, which I would consider to be parallel with the Australian origin story at Gallipoli? Yes, it's extremely important uh, for Ulster people. Uh, the role of the Ulster Division, uh, uh, the 36th Ulster Division at the Battle of the Somme, uh, had great symbolic value. Um, and uh, you're, right, you're right to say it was like the Australian uh, occasion at Anzac. But uh, of course, in Ireland as well, then we have the Easter Rising. And well, for Nationalists and Republicans, that was a great symbolic uh, event uh, where people gave their blood, where people died for their cause. So for Ulster Unionists, the Battle of the Somme was a very important in the same way. Uh, and I think he was you know, pushing a certain button there when he said that. That's what he was referring to. Uh, and I think that was very important that he did that for, for the people who are listening. Eamon, um, uh, Maria has just has, has referenced the number of times the word empire appears in the speech. And um, is it fair to say that he is offering a vision of an existence separate from the United Kingdom, self-ruling, yes. but inside the empire, in effect, dominion self-status, self-governing, but inside the empire. Yes, he's delivering a kind of a, a view of realpolitik to the Sinn Féin leaders in the South. General Smuts, in his contacts with de Valera, he would meet him later, had been trying to lower Republican expectations of a totally independent republic, which, of course, the both British parties, all British parties believe, would be inimical to the empire. Um, so in that sense, he's lowering Republican expectations. He's focusing more on, on dominion status. But of course, in, in relation to what Brian said, he does obviously um, uh, affirm the blood sacrifice of the Battle of the Somme 
Islam, which is so important, becomes almost the foundation myth of Northern Ireland, but he's not critical of republicanism's uh, military campaign, the IRA campaign. He's uncritical there as well. So there is a balance in the speech which is going to draw Sinn Féin to pay due attention to his comments. Because what's fascinating is the difference in the speech from the speech the same king made six months and one day earlier to Westminster Parliament, when he was proroguing Parliament on the 23rd of December, um, where he attacked the campaign of violence and outrage by which a small minority of my subjects seek to sever Ireland from the empire. So this is the same king with a very different speech. Well, it's how things have changed. Uh, there's a bit of a stalemate. Uh, I think on both sides, it must be apparent that there's no going to be a, no outright victory. Uh, it takes time for that to sink in. Uh, and we're going through these stages, and this is a very important penultimate stage in, in that development. Because there was a, a sense at the end of 20 that um, they, there was light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the British campaign, that they were, the, the generals, they picked up on the um, motion from uh, Galway, um, letters from Sinn Féin um, officials talking about an end, for, an end to the war, and Lloyd George was reading this as vulnerability, strike. So the, this was, a, as you say, a very different time. Even six months had passed, it was like 60 years had passed. Yes. But also in Republican circles, there was probably a realisation they weren't going to win this war. No one could win this war outright. So some compromise has to be arrived at. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I'm going to play the same segment we played in the radio segment because it's, it's part of the kind of narrative. And it's the segment that gets so much attention. Uh, it's the one where he, he holds out the vision of a separate future for Ireland inside the empire with a strong hint that it was time to talk. The eyes of the whole empire are on Ireland today. That empire in which so many nations and races have come together in spite of ancient feuds, and in which new nations have come to birth within the lifetime of the youngest in this hall. I am emboldened by that thought, to look beyond the sorrow and the anxiety which have clouded of late my vision of Irish affairs. I speak from a full heart when I pray that my coming to Ireland today may prove to be the first step towards an end of strife amongst her people, whatever their race or creed. In that hope, I appeal to all Irishmen to pause to stretch out the hand of forbearance and conciliation, to forgive and to forget, and to join in making for the land which they love a new era of peace, contentment, and goodwill. So, is there a danger, because I have picked up from some historians, uh, possibly just uh, for, for contrarians, that uh, the speech has been over-interpreted, overplayed. Marie, what do you think? I think um, to pick up a point maybe is to look as well at what's not in it as opposed to what's in it and what's not involved in the day. We spoke already, you mentioned it there, that there isn't an outright condemnation of the violence in the South. He's, he parses his words uh, about the, the Southerners because he knows that anything like that would put them off. But there's that general sense, I suppose, of if we look at the context, what's missing? Uh, the people there on the day, Edward Carson wasn't there. This speech didn't speak to one third 
of the population of the new Northern Ireland. There's Southern Unionists looking from the south who, who feel themselves abandoned. So I think maybe it, it, uh, there's, a, an, there's an argument for moving beyond the actual speech and not getting too caught up in it to look at that wider context, but also to look at the, the missing parts, both in the speech and in the, those attending on the day, and those who were excluded, I suppose, by this speech, or felt excluded by it. Let's, um, let's hear now how he finishes the speech. It is my earnest desire that in Southern Ireland too, there may ere long take place a parallel to what is now passing in this hall, that there a similar occasion may present itself and a similar ceremony be performed. For this, the Parliament of the United Kingdom has in the fullest measure provided the powers... For this, the Parliament of Ulster is pointing the way. The future lies in the hands of my Irish people themselves. May this historic gathering be the prelude of a day in which the Irish people north and south, under one Parliament or two, as those Parliaments may themselves decide, shall work together in common love for Ireland upon the sure foundation of mutual justice and respect. And uh, that's the last clip we're going to run. It was reenacted by actor Stephen Beggs. Um, there was one entreaty in the um, speech where he was essentially ho uh, setting a bar for the new administration, the Craig administration, in terms of its fairness, its even-handedness. And I'm wondering... Um, how high on the up to that bar did James Craig's administration get? Yeah, it, it obviously was the, the King's obviously hope that the new Parliament would be managed with wisdom, moderation, fairness, and due regard to every faith and interest. This included, of course, the one-third minority who were boycotting the partition Parliament. And in fact, we're not there that day. There's a bit of embarrassment in Lady Craig's diary as she describes her husband's triumph on that day, greeting the King that the Catholics weren't present. Cardinal Logue had a, uh, an alternative appointment. Nobody is there not even Joe Devlin, who was well known. And there's only one Catholic from, from the North actually greets the King, and he's brought up from Dublin, the Belfast-born Sir James McMahon, the Undersecretary, so the King can say he met one Northern Catholic. Uh, it's that bad. And in many ways, I mean, had the, King, had the King's speech the following day to the opening of the new Parliament for business, you know, he opened it in state. Had it included, you know, proportional representation, weighted representation for the minority in the new Senate, a review of electoral boundaries. I mean, the future could have been so different, but instead, the legislation coming down the line is abolishing PR for local elections. It's going to go for all elections later in the 20s. Um, gerrymandering is set in trail almost right away, removing the nationalist control from Manor, Tyrone, and Derry councils. And all of that, of course, is a strike at the minority. Um, who are unwilling participants in this new entity called Northern Ireland. The King couldn't have envisioned that. Look, can I make a point? Eamon's mm. uh, quite right to point out these things that happened, for example, abolition of PR, local elections, redrawing of boundaries. This is in many ways a response to the Boundary Commission uh, because they were afraid part of Northern Ireland would be cut off. So that's why they respond doing those things. But when it's all over by 1926, there are efforts at accommodation 
Uh, I mean, Cardinal uh, Donald, the Catholic primate, uh, says that he hopes we can move forward in, in a peaceful way. You speeches from unionist politicians, uh, which are very considerate, considerate towards the South, considerate towards the nationalists. But by the late 1920s, this has started to, to stop. This has started to fail. Um, and, and that is partly because the constitutional issue remains there, the border, the whole question remains at the core of elections. Uh, you also have party dynamics. Uh, for Craig, the problem is not just the nationalists, the problem is people within his own ranks, and that's why he abolishes PR in 1929, not to do anything harmful to the nationalists. Their vote doesn't go down in, in, in the elections. Their seats don't go down. Right. But the important thing is that independents have been removed, uh, and uh, his uh, uh, what he's doing is asserting, try, trying to keep unionists together. So when you get to the 30s, then you confrontation, the South, the confessional state, De Valera, republicanism, uh, so the North then responds in kind, and so you do have a digging in. But I don't believe this was inevitable. I believe it was to do with party dynamics uh, and that sort of thing. But I think the problem is that James Craig doesn't portray himself as a prime minister for all the people. He talked about abolishing PR at Westminster. He, he actually prevented it becoming a permanent measure. He'd made it clear he didn't want PR. And, I mean, in the next 10 years, Catholic schools received no funding. Um, the only Nationalist Act passed is the Wild Birds Protection Act of 1931, and nationalism quickly becomes a state within a state. So the abject failure of Craig to match his honeyed words in the later 20s with action, that is the real problem. Just one point in that last section we heard where he's, the King speaks about how he'd like to see something similar happen in the south of Ireland. I would say Republicans in the south when were listening to that going, well, we already have our own parliament, which we inaugurated in January 1919, based on a democratic mandate from the 1918 general election for self-determination, which the British government never recognised. Hmm. Um, one of the... Um Criticisms levelled at the new Craig administration is some of the legislation that passed um, internment. Uh, and uh, yes. I, 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 I would ask the question: Did he have any alternative? I mean, one of the most um, distressing episodes in the entire um, post-war of independence period is how um, Michael Collins tried to paper over the cracks in the IRA yep. by using Northern Ireland as a kind of tethered live bait. Yes. for the red meat Republicans to sink their teeth into. And William, um, James Craig was operating, knowing that this was happening, that Collins was talking to him face-to-face, -face, sending the yes. IRA across the border. Yes, yes. Yes, there was a sustained IRA campaign against the new state in 1922. The first six months uh, sees a lot of violence. Uh, Craig, uh, Collins uh, sends uh, supplies to help the IRA in the north. Uh, so there's considerable violence. Now, the, the Northern State then brings in a special powers act. This is after a unionist MP is shot. And it was, it's very severe. They introduced internment, there's flogging. But these measures are not as severe as what would subsequently be introduced in the South. It's worth bearing that in mind. Uh, the punishment for uh, possession of arms in Northern Ireland uh, was flogging on top of a custodial sentence. In the South, it was execution Death. after special courts. Mm. When a TD is shot in the South, the government introduced summary execution of four prisoners. Now, the Northern government never did that. 
there's a civil war in the south which leads to 1,500 dead at least. In the north, in that first six months, something like 300 die. So we must bear in mind that elsewhere there's violence in this period. Elsewhere there are minorities who don't accept the existing system. In the south it wasn't just a Protestant minority, it was um, anti-treaty people. Uh, in many parts of Europe there's, there are countries set up where there are minorities who are not happy with the arrangements. So this is a difficult period. Uh, what happens in Northern Ireland is by no means unique. And I would argue the violence we see here was not on the top scale we see elsewhere. So these qualifying factors had, I think, to be borne in mind. Eamon, um, was there a, a, um, a trick missed by the nationalist uh, com community and the politicians in not taking the parliament seriously? I mean, you see references to the Pygmy Parliament, the Freeman's Journal, uh, Irish News in August saying it's inherently unworkable. Was there a sense that they just had to wait it out and that they miscalculated? Yes, I mean, for Joe Devlin, uh, responding to the 1920 Act going through Parliament, and he was an outsider looking in with a massive Tory Unionist majority in favour. Uh, he said it was the worst form of partition, and of course permanent partition. And what transformed everything was, the, of course, the Unionist reaction to the Home Rule Bill of 1912. I mean, they had signed the Covenant, uh, said they would refuse to recognise the new Parliament. If it was set up, they would use force against it, all means that are necessary. So they had given the nationalists, you know, the kind of spreadsheet of, 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 of a sort of a, a plan of action to oppose this parliament. They were also backed by the Republican leaders in Dublin and Michael Collins when he takes power as the uh, chairman of the provisional government in 1922. And he is obviously encouraging the nationalists not to take their seats, but also for nationalist councils to declare allegiance to Doyle Aaron. Uh, he supports the IRA in the North. He has this twin track policy. He's very, uh, really, um, exercised by the sectarian violence in Belfast, in which Catholics really are the people losing. Lord George writes at this time, our Ulster case is not a good one in relation to these years. It's a really violent period, but remember, nearly 10,000 Catholics had been driven out of their work in 1920. And James Quigg, who was the junior admiralty minister, came to Belfast and said, you know, well done, big and we yard, condoning that. Now, a case of a prime minister uh, designate condoning the expulsion of people from work because of their religion, um, or their labour views in the case of the Protestant it was incredible. And the Manchester Guardian said at that time, if the Prime Minister couldn't guarantee the right of Catholics to work, he couldn't guarantee them any rights. And that's how the state started. Brian? Well, it's worth pointing out that in this period, there was no major permanent displacement of population in Northern Ireland. This contrasts to other partition situations where there was. Now, many Catholics left Northern Ireland uh, in, in the troubles, but many of them return. The, the, the fall in the Catholic population numbers <clears throat> between 1911 and 1926 <clears throat> is only 10,000. In the south, over 100,000 Protestants have left. Uh, in Northern Ireland, uh, the, the, the permanent displacement is not of any great consequence. Uh, so that's worth bearing in mind. What it is now, these are very tough times, but they're tough times elsewhere. In Silesia, for example, where they go for the step of having a plebiscite, which is talked about for Fermanagh and Tyrone, this leads to colossal violence. We avoided that colossal violence. And what's quite interesting, when you look at the figures, the War of Independence, the period from 1917 to December 1923, uh, December 1921, which are the quietest counties in Ireland? Now, the new book on the victims of, of the Irish Revolution point out County Tyrone, 
the quietest county, when you come to the number of deaths in relation to population, County Tyrone was first, uh, was the lowest number, followed by County Cavan, followed by County Fermanagh, followed by County Down, followed by County Donegal. So it's wrong to think that this place was just a, a total place of violence. In fact, set in relation to other parts of Ireland, it was actually not so bad. If I could ask the panel to um, imagine themselves back uh, this is, is it's a bit unfair, but um, look, looking from um, June 1921, what are the milestones that people now looking back should be paying attention to in terms of how we got to where we are from from here? Now? Oh yes, well from 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 the, the King's speech, we go to the truth to the to the treaty itself, which of course uh, confirms partition, but introduces, as Brian said, a boundary commission to review it. It's a very, very vague document, uh, full of uh, ambiguity, um, and it doesn't solve anything when it collapses in 1925. And really, we have a situation out of all this, where from 1922 to the early 60s, the nationalist community are a state within a state, with their own infrastructure, they look to Dublin, they have their own culture, their own hospital even in Belfast. Uh, they're really in the state, but not of it. And it's really the transformative effect is the 1947 Education Act, based on the egalitarian Butler Act in, in England, because that enables a whole generation of working-class Catholics, like John Hume, Bernadette Devlin, Eamon McCann, we can pick them out, and they become really the galaxy of talent at the head of a civil rights movement in the 60s, picking up an issues that are festering, like the housing issue, like gerrymandering, like special powers. And of course, it's that challenge to the state. In the 60s, when things seem to be getting better, and O'Neill's talking to Lamas, and the nationalists have become the official opposition in 65, very briefly, things seem to be improving. There's more work, there are better houses, and the lid blows off in 69. And it really comes back to Richard Rose's theory. You had a government without consensus from the beginning. You had a police force without consensus, because the specials were 99% Protestant. They were 32,000 strong, and they ensured the border in the Bogside and South Armagh. So all of that unfinished business that somebody said about, it's not really dealt with until the Good Friday Agreement of 1998 and equality laws, which were brought in in the 90s. Brian, what will you be looking forward to? I mean, if you were looking with a, with a crystal ball, looking ahead into the, from the perspective of June 20, 1921? Well, the question is, how would these two states settle down? Now, in the case of Northern Ireland, there were failures. There were failures to uh, create a society, politics, which involved all members of the community. Uh, and that's something that must be acknowledged and pointed out. But it's also point out the successes <coughs> of this uh, new Northern Ireland. Uh, here, the population grows. Uh, 50 years after uh, partition, the population of Northern Ireland is 22% bigger than it was in, in 1926. Uh, it has grown significantly, 22%. Catholic population has grown by over 30%. If you take the, the, the free state in the Irish Republic, every decade after 1921, there's a fall in the population until the 1960s. And so by the time we get to 1970 and compare what is, the situation is between then and 1926, the population has grown by what? It's grown by 0.2%, only 8,000 people. Hundreds of thousands of people have left to go to Britain. There's a, a British census 1971 that shows nearly a million people in Ireland, in Britain, are Irish born. So they've left. So that's been a great failure. Today, of course, we have great change. Now, in Northern Ireland, we have a system of government, thanks to the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, a system of government that creates power sharing, it creates a consensus behind the politics we have. 
In the south, there's been tremendous social and economic change. There we have a, a, a booming economy and, and a growing population. Uh, so things were bad, things had good points, things had bad points. Today we're in a better place and it's important that we hold on to it. I think I'd question the role of the British government post-1921. When the King left here after his five hours in Belfast 100 years ago today, the British government washed its hands of Ireland. There's a line in the, the Lloyd George Museum in Wales that says that Lloyd George solved the Irish question. They left the place for 50 years. As Eamon said, they had to pick up the pieces in 1969. In the meantime, they allowed things like Craig's government to resile from PR, which was part of the legislation passed by Westminster. So the neglect of Northern Ireland by the British government for 50 years is an important point, and they were left to pick up the pieces for their own negligence by 1970. Okay, well, we've come to the end of our segment here. Um, I'd like to thank our guests, uh, Dr. Mary Coleman, uh, Professor Brian Walker and Dr. Eamon Phoenix, and uh, my own colleagues, Michael McLaughlin and Damien Gavigan on sound. From me, Shane McElhatton, it's back to you in Dublin.